Well, our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. This is found on page 809 in the Pew Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take that one with you this morning as a gift from us. Matthew 4, verses 17 through 25, read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And Jesus called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. It's so good to see each of you and just really glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for coming out on such a cold morning. It's bitter this morning. Um, but we're grateful that you're here, especially if this is your first time with us. I know it's certainly not easy to come to church on an ordinary day, uh, especially not easy on a three-degree day or whatever it is outside. So thank you uh, for coming out in the cold and um, enjoying the brilliant sunshine coming in here. Um, this is gorgeous. So before we look at this passage of Matthew that uh, Paul just read for us, I want to begin, um, as we do each week, by praying. And it's not just to provide a transition, um, but deeply understanding that, that if God's word is to speak to us, that we need his help to hear. And so um, I'm going to pray now that, that he would help all of us to hear from him this morning. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have spoken in your word that it isn't just a a record of past events, that it isn't um, just a a book full of morals, but it's living and active, and it's pointing us to a person, to the person of Jesus. Would we now hear his voice as he speaks to us? Would you do this by the power of your spirit? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As we begin, take a look at this video as we start.
what would be the hardest thing for you to leave? Have you ever thought about that? What would be the hardest thing for you to leave in order to follow? And you may think, uh, well, of course not, Bill. That's not a very fun thing to think about. Um, and, and I get that. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, it's a tough question, isn't it? What, what would be the hardest thing for you to leave in order to follow? And as I was spent a lot of time thinking about that question uh, this week as I was preparing, um, what came to my mind first was all the time I had uh, at home. I just took the week between Christmas and New Year's out of the office and was home with the family and um, after spending that week with Rachel and Lucy celebrating Christmas and playing with Lucy and, and her new toys and games and uh, having her every morning when she realized I was still home and I hadn't gone to work, say, Daddy, home! Um, and I was going to be there for the day. Um, it made me realize more than ever that I, my family, I think, is that thing. That, that I would say, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you sort of don't disrupt this happy family I have in any way. Um, you know, I, I so deeply value the, the comfort of home and, and the security of, of a good job. I think that was probably second on my list. The identity I have as a, as a pastor, my, my career, um, would be really hard for me to leave. And, and, and again, what I mean by leave is not necessarily like leave and go to Africa or something like that or, or abandon your family. So, so don't get your hopes up there. Um, I, I don't even necessarily mean getting rid of everything, just selling everything you have. More like, what would be the hardest thing for you to hand control over? What, what would that be for you? Your goals, ambitions, desires, your hobbies, your me time, your downtime, work, money, political affiliations, habits, lifestyle, whatever. What are those things that you say, this is what defines me? Are you willing to leave those definitions of who you are for a new one in Jesus? And here's the thing. Uh, this isn't a hypothetical question, because if you start following Jesus, you will eventually and, and regularly face just these sort of questions. What are you willing, what are you going to leave in order to follow? Because here's what we learned from Matthew this morning, and he, and he says it so clearly, he doesn't want us to miss it. He actually says it twice. He shows us that Jesus, what Jesus wants, and, and I can't think of anything better for us to do, for us to focus our time on second Sunday into the new year, that the hardest thing for you to leave is exactly the thing he wants the most. That you have to leave in order to follow. That you have to leave in order to follow. And this morning, we're going to look at the story that, that Paul read for us, this account from Jesus' ministry. We're going to look at it in a little bit more detail, and then we'll look at three observations from it um, a little bit later on toward the end. Now, as we go through here, I want you to understand that this is, we're not talking about earning our salvation or being good enough so that God will accept us, that if we left enough behind, that then Jesus will, will somehow be pleased with us. There's, there's not a chance. That, and yet the definition of the Christian life that we see in the Gospels, that we see really in all of the New Testament, is that what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, is, is more than simply believing that God exists or sort of nodding your head that you agree with a certain set of doctrines, but that it's, it's fundamentally about following Jesus. It's not just about being a nice person or, or church, going to church on a regular basis. None of that makes you a Christian. What, what makes you a Christian is placing your trust in Jesus and then following him, saying no to, no to self and yes to Christ. And imperfectly, of course, I mean, we're, we're, none of us are completely there yet. None of us have it all figured out. And yet, in order to follow, we have to leave. Your old values, your identity, your plans. 
And that's why we're calling this section of Matthew, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for a while, but that's why we're calling this section of Matthew the upside-down kingdom, that Jesus takes everything that, that we sort of intuitively think about how the world should work, and he turns it upside down. And, and what we begin to realize is actually we are the ones who have been upside down, and Jesus is finally helping us to see the way things really ought to work, what true happiness is. That's what we'll see next week, what, what true joy is, what it means to truly love. And we see this today as he calls his first followers. So if you haven't already, I invite you to pick up one of the pew Bibles or open it on your phone. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'd love for you to follow along at the end of the chapter, that kind of the last part of the verses of that chapter. And in the account of Jesus' life that Matthew's writing for us, he's recording um, these different events. So, so far, he's shown us Jesus' birth. Um, he's shown us Jesus sort of being visited by the Magi. Uh, Jesus flees with his family as a baby to Egypt for a time because of Herod, and now he's back. Um, and what we looked at just last week uh, and the week before was Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem in the area called Judea. And then last week, we looked at Jesus out in the midst of um, the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And now Jesus is going back to where he grew up, back to near Nazareth, back to the area of Galilee. And so he leaves the area around Jerusalem and returns to this area around the Sea of Galilee. Now, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and I think I have a video here um, of, of just sort of a little bit of a flyover of some of that part of the, of the world. What you see is that Galilee, um, it's, they call it the Sea of Galilee. It's really more like a big lake. Um, and, and it's really big. It's, it's, not like, it's not quite like Lake Michigan, but if you've ever gone out to, to Clinton Lake in Lawrence, it's about six times the size of, of Clinton Lake in Lawrence. And it's a beautiful place. Um, but because the Sea of Galilee, this, this big lake, is about 700 feet below sea level, it's also prone to kind of sudden violent storms as well that can come up uh, seemingly out of nowhere. And the main industry around the Sea of Galilee is, is fishing. And Jesus is there walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers from a town to the, on the north edge of the sea called Bethsaida. And that literally means fish town. Um, so you can guess what, what they did there in fish town. Um, they, they're fishermen. Their, their names were Simon, and who's later called Peter, and then Andrew. So Simon and, and Andrew are there. Jesus sees them, and, and he calls them to himself. Now, according to the God, John's gospel, we have four sort of accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Matthew, which we're looking at, Mark, Luke, and John. In John's gospel, we know that Jesus has already had some interaction with Simon and Andrew before this, but they had gone back to their normal lives. They hadn't yet followed Jesus. He hadn't called them in this kind of way yet. And Jesus is walking along the shore. He sees Simon and Andrew. They're doing the same thing that their, their father, probably their grandfather has done, their classmates. They're, they're fishing. It's the thing that people from Fishtown are best at. And again, don't picture them with sort of a, a pole and a hook sort of fishing off the side of a dock. And this is a commercial fishing operation. This isn't just recreational. So they have a big round net, probably 25, 30 feet across, and it's weighted around the edges. So you toss this net in, it sinks down, you pull it back in, and, and you see what's caught up in the net. And when Jesus sees them, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they cast it out. They let it sink. Like I said, they scoop it back up. And Jesus says to them, leave all of that behind, this, this rhythm that you've known forever and ever. He says, follow me. 
And I'm going to make you fishers not of fish, but of men. Which is kind of a weird thing to say. I don't think a lot of people talk like that. So it's a weird thing to say. But immediately then, they leave their nets, which is almost even weirder. They barely know Jesus. And yet sometimes when he speaks, there's something about him that they immediately leave their nets and follow him. Now, what's also sort of weird, interesting, unusual about this text is the very fact that Jesus is doing the calling, that he's out there. Because most people would have thought of Jesus as as a rabbi, as a teacher. But here's the thing, rabbis of that day, these Jewish teachers, they didn't go out and look for disciples. If you were interested in learning from, studying with, it's almost like going to college, studying with this rabbi, you go and sort of apply to be with him. Uh, Not the other way around. They aren't looking for followers. Rabbis received followers. They didn't go out and find them. But again, Jesus turns things upside down. He goes out and he calls followers to himself. And so now the three of them, Jesus, Andrew, Simon, they're walking along together. And Jesus sees another set of brothers. It's almost as though he's got this planned out. And and James and John are their names. And they're in a boat with their father, Zebedee, sort of near the shore. They're mending uh, their nets. They're working together. And about 30 years ago, um, archaeologists discovered the remains of a fishing boat uh, that was from this time. It was in the first century. They dated it back to there. You kind of get a little bit of a sense of what that boat would have been like. Here's actually a smaller replica of, of what that boat would have looked like all put together. But in the, the boat that they'd found, it's about 27 feet long. It would have been enough uh, room for about 15 workers in the boat at a time. And I think sometimes we, we view the disciples or we think of the disciples as sort of these rednecks or um, uneducated people, but they had a, a, a fair degree of education. And especially James and John, they're, they're part owners in a thriving business with, with overhead, with revenues, with employees. We know from the Gospel of Mark that they had some hired men that worked with them. And so they weren't exactly what we would call middle class, and that category didn't really exist in the first century. But they were better off, they were about as middle class as you get, they were better off than sort of the poorest peasants um, of the time. They certainly weren't wealthy, they weren't part of the aristocracy, but they were, they were, they had, they had some means and they had some education. But in a way, it's still a bit odd, right? If Jesus is going to build a movement to, to spread the gospel around the world, he just sort of picks some, some middle-class small business owners from an insignificant Roman province to build his kingdom. I mean, it's upside down, right? I mean, today it'd be like Jesus just grabbing a few, you know, here's a few nurses, grab an engineer or two, and come, let's do this thing. From Kansas City, this great city, but it's not a particularly geopolitically significant place in the grand scope of the world. It's not New York or Washington, D.C. or Beijing. But this is where Jesus starts. And Jesus calls out to James and John. What does Matthew tell us? It's the exact same thing. Immediately, they leave the boat, their father, and they follow him. Now again, we have to remember the reason that Matthew's telling us these things. He's, he's a historian, he's recounting history, he's telling us these events, but like any good historian doing true history, uh, he's also communicating, he's trying to make sense of, he's trying to create meaning, to, to attach meaning to these events, and he's placing them here in his story, in his narrative for a particular reason. 
Because Matthew's writing all this down about 20 to 30 years after uh, Jesus has uh, died and been raised from the dead. And people are still intrigued by Jesus. The word about him is spread. And more than that, people are still following him. And Matthew tells us a story. He places it in this part of the gospel early on just to show us exactly what it looks like to follow him. You have to leave in order to follow. This leads us to our first observation from this text this morning. And that is that Jesus wants it all. Jesus wants it all. What happens with these two set of brothers is astonishing, but I think we often miss it either because we're just sort of so familiar with the story that we, that we don't really pay attention to it anymore or because we're so unfamiliar with the cultural context that they lived in. You see, in a traditional culture, which is what they're coming from, in traditional cultures, family is everything. The family business, uh, your family name, your family identity, it's, it's everything. In more uh, modern and Western cultures, we tend to define our, inter- uh, our identity more individualistically. And so if, we, if I meet you on Sunday morning, I'm much more likely to ask you, oh, what do you do? Or where did you go to school? Rather than who are your parents? What family are you a part of? We define ourselves by our accomplishments, by what school we went to, the career path we've chosen. But for the disciples, and really for, you know, billions of people even around the world today who live in traditional cultures, family is everything. Who do you belong to? What's your family reputation? Your obligations to family are supreme. And these guys, when Jesus calls them, leave all of that behind They're leaving everything they know and love with no guarantees, except they have this sense that Jesus is worth it. Now, again, it doesn't mean that when they left their families that they never saw them again. We see in the Gospels they continue to interact with their family. But what happens is there's a shift in allegiance and identity. Jesus is now number one, not family. Now, this text has often been twisted and abused, not, not usually intentionally, I don't think, but twisted and abused to mean that, that if every Christian, if they're, if they're really serious about following Jesus, that they have to quit their job and somehow become a missionary or a pastor. It's often been used in that way, that they left Jesus and they followed him, they left all their work behind. And Jesus isn't saying that we all have to leave our jobs, <laughs> I mean, there were 12 disciples who Jesus called uniquely to do that, to spend these three years with him and to become the leaders of of this movement, this thing called the church. But there are thousands and thousands of other followers of Jesus who kept fishing, who kept farming, who kept whatever they did. And most continue to live normal lives, but with a new normal, right? With a fundamental new allegiance, with, with a new identity, with a new hope, right where they were. As philosopher Dallas Willard put it, he said they they would progressively learn to lead their lives as Jesus would if he were them. And that's okay because, because work isn't ultimately the point. The point is that following means leaving. And for most of us, there are way harder things to leave than our jobs, much harder to entrust to him. Our identity, our ambitions, our desires, goals. Jesus is asking much, much more than leaving your job. He wants everything. And and that's the point in the video that we watched at the very beginning. It isn't that any of the things in the video, that golf or video games or plans or ambitions, any of those things are bad. In fact, most of them are really good things. But in some ways, that's just the trouble. 
It's the, the very best of things in life that are at the greatest risk of becoming ultimate things for us. The best things are the things that are at risk of becoming ultimate things that, that we're tempted to build our lives around instead of God. It's not, the, it's not the crummy things that we're tempted to build our lives around. It's the good things, the very best things that could become something we hope in rather than something we just hope for. And that's what Jesus is calling us to leave. Not necessarily the things themselves, but leave our hope in those things and put our hope in him. He demands that we make him our all because that's the only way to true life, to true joy, to true happiness is to make him the ultimate thing. So what are you holding back? Jesus wants it all. What are you holding back? My guess is that for most of us, we we probably already know what that is. Maybe as soon as you heard that question, what am I holding back? Something popped into your mind. And maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something related to your sexuality. Maybe there's something that you need to confess that you haven't. Uh, Sam Alberry, who's a pastor who experiences same-sex attraction, writes this. He says, ever since I have become open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must, much be, must, much, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up. But then Sam writes this, and it's so powerful. He says, but the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyles or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Let me just read that last sentence again. It's so convicting to me. If, if someone thinks that the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. I mean, it's finances. I mean, it's your overwork, the time you spend building your identity in a career, tying up your, your, your identity and sense of self-worth with your kids and, and how well they're doing. So the question you have to ask is, what, is those, what are those things promising you? Why do they have such a grip on you? And, and doesn't Jesus ultimately promise so much more than those things can ever give. Because here's the thing with, when you turn good things into ultimate things, good things will always promise to give you what you really desire, but they always will let you down. It's time to leave those things. You have to leave in order to follow. So Jesus wants it all, but Jesus also wants it now. He wants it all, but he also wants it now. He doesn't want it later. He wants it now. And this is probably more than anything else what sticks out so vividly in this passage is is the immediacy 
of the obedience of, of James and John and Simon and Andrew, that when Matthew records the responses of those brothers, he uses the word immediately twice. And, and I think we can easily skim over that without really thinking of how significant it is because we're, we're just kind of reading quickly and they immediately start to follow. But I mean, can you imagine that? They, Jesus, who they maybe know a little bit, but they don't know that well, he calls them and they immediately follow him. And I don't know about you, I just don't make decisions that way. If you talk to Rachel, she can tell you whether it's a buying a car or a flashlight. I'm doing my research. I'm reading the Amazon reviews. I'm getting the consumer reports. I'm reading the blogs and watching the YouTube videos. Like I'm doing my research. I'm doing my homework, weighing my options. But when Jesus calls you and says, follow me, there's, there's no research that these guys do. There's no weighing of options. They go and they go immediately. Because with Jesus, it isn't sort of a negotiation. It isn't buying a car. Jesus isn't offering something in that sense. He's commanding. The disciples respond. Jesus' timeline, his time frame for obedience, it's, it's always right now. You see, if you hear a voice in your head that's negotiating, that's arguing with you about what it means to follow or should I give up this or should I not or that's not Jesus. He doesn't argue. He doesn't make a case when it comes to following. He commands. He invites. He calls. Now I think oftentimes I tend to be okay at least in theory. I don't know about in actuality but in theory of this all part like Jesus wanting it all and being like okay I want to give all. But I often do sort of this the later thing. You can have it all, but, but some of the stuff I'll give to you later, right? We do this, right? We, we negotiate. We, we name our terms. You sort of say to yourself, well, I'll spend more time at home after I get that next promotion. Or, well, I'll stop looking at porn once I get married. Or, I'll give more generously once we get that next raise. Or I'll start serving in my community when I have more time. We, we put some kind of later piece on it. And, I, and I, I'm feeling this in new ways as a parent. We have a two-year-old, Lucy. And, and I'm realizing how many times I say to her now, Lucy, obedience means the first time. I don't, sometimes I ask her to do something a bunch, a bunch of times. Right? Obedience means the first time. And, and it's really discouraging, mostly not because of, of her, but because I'm realizing that that's how God has to feel about me. It's been this vivid mirror back at, at how I relate to God, and, and it's been really convicting. Because I've said myself, and, and I've heard other people say it a lot, that, that partial obedience or delayed obedience is disobedience. And now it's like, oh, in the life of a two-year-old, I'm like seeing how that works out and how frustrating that is. And this is how God has to put up with me all the time. Busted by a two-year-old. It's really been convicting. So the question is, what am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? Because here's the thing. There is a sense in which discipleship, which is just a, a churchy word, a church word for, for following Jesus, there's a sense in which discipleship, following Jesus, is always in the present tense. What I mean by that is this, that, that you can't go back and, and follow Jesus yesterday 
And, and you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And we're not guaranteed this afternoon. Any one of us could die in a car accident on the way home. It, discipleship, it's always in the present tense. It's always in, in the now. The only thing we have is now. So are, are you following Jesus right now, this morning? N- not did you follow him when you were in high school not, not will you follow him once you graduate or once you get your career more stable or once you get married or whatever it is, but are you following him now, today? Are you following Jesus? This is the question that Jesus puts to each and every one of us. I was struck recently by a story through one of our ministry partners, Elam, and Elam plants churches and trains pastors in Iran where um, being a Christian, certainly being a pastor or being a part of a church is illegal, um, where you can be imprisoned for following Jesus, even killed. And actually, on a quick aside, some really good news from Elam recently. Many of you know we've prayed for Pastor Farshid for, well, even before the Brookside campus was even in existence. We've been praying for Farshid, who is in Evan Prison in Tehran for uh, nearly five years, and he was released just before Christmas, and so we're really thankful. Um, that God has heard and answered our prayers, and he's been returned to his family. Um, but Elam, this past fall, they celebrated the baptisms of more than 450 former Muslims, all at tremendous personal risk, that they really left everything to follow. I want to have you just watch the story of one of them. اسم من لادنه من در ایران به دنیا آمدم در یک خانواده مسلمون در ایران ممنوعه که کسی به مسیح ایمان بیاره مخصوصا اگر مسلمون باشه و کتاب مقدس داشته باشه کتاب مقدس به کس دیگه ای بده در مورد ایمانش با کسی صحبت بکنه این یه جرم به حساب میاد وقتی که به کلیسا رفتم و دیدم که چطور خدا رو با شادی پرستش میکنن برام خیلی عجیب بود به خاطر اینکه تو اسلام ما معمولا تو مراسمی که خیلی مراسم ازاداری هست و با گریه مسلمونا خدا رو میپرستن و دعا میکنن زمانی که خانواده من و دوستان متوجه شدن که من به مسیح ایمان آوردم اصلا خوشحال نبودن مخصوصا خانوادم میدیدن که زندگی من داره تغییر میکنه توی ایران شروع کردم به بشارت دادن هر جایی که میرفتم با خودم انجیل کتاب مقدس میبردم اونجا هر کسی رو که میدیدم توی پارک توی مرکزهای خرید با در مورد مسیح صحبت میکردم انجیل رو بهشون میدادم می دیدم که چقدر مردم با اشتیاق این کتاب رو می گیرن و شروع می کنن به خوندن هر روز بیشتر می دیدم که مردم به مسیح ایمان میارن 26 دسامبر بود که من رو دستگیر کردن و من به زندان رفتم نمی دونستم که چه مدتی من قراره که اونجا باشم فکر می کردم که برای خیلی مدت طولانی اونجا خواهم بود
الان خیلی شاید توی نگرانی و ناامیدی هستی ولی میخوام بگم که برای تو امید هست در عیسی مسیح somehow I think that we often think that Jesus expects so much less from us somehow here, um, don't we? So Jesus, he wants it all. He, he wants it now. And he wants it for others. So Jesus wants, wants all of us. He, he doesn't want it later. He wants it now. But he wants it for others. He, he doesn't just call us so that we can know him and sort of live happily ever after as we kind of wait to go to heaven. Just Jesus and me. No, he calls us to himself so that we will be a part of calling others. That when we follow Jesus, there's only one place that he's leading and that is that he's calling us into this vocation, this task of, of being fishers of men is what he calls it. Fishers of, of people, of gathering a community of people who, who serve one another, who love one another, who, who calls others to leave in order to follow. And you notice that Jesus actually presents this as something that we get to do, an, an opportunity, not something that we're, we're forced to do. And how many of us think of, of sharing our faith, of, of sharing our own story of, of how we've encountered the, the good news, the life-changing news, the gospel, something we get to do. You see, the kingdom of God, it's a community project. And, and you see it uh, immediately in the next story that these, they go out together in this, in this account. And you see Jesus going around and he's calling, there's these crowds of people who come to him and they're being healed all throughout Galilee. Jesus shows us what it looks like. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom. He's saying the kingdom is near, repent. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And he heals anybody and everybody who comes to them. Word and deed together. You see, fishing for, for people, calling people together, it always includes both. It's not just enough to tell them that Jesus loves them. You have to show it to them. And it's also not just enough to show it to them. You, you also have to tell them Speak to them, explain why it is that you do what you do. And, and, it, and it may sound a bit corny, and I, I don't mean anything demeaning by it, but just to pick up on this meaning metaphor that Jesus has is, is so who, who are you fishing for in your life? If you're a follower, who, who are you seeking out? And I don't mean in a scheming or manipulative way. Don't, don't force it or don't, don't make it weird. But, but who do you love enough to show Jesus to? Who are, you, who are you praying for on a regular basis that, that they don't know Christ? They, they're not a part of a church. Kids, who are the people at school maybe or in your neighborhood that seem lonely that you could play with or eat lunch with? Who are the neighbors on your block who need help? What about a family member or a coworker who needs encouragement? Do those things. Serve, help, be generous with your, your time and with your life because those are good things. Jesus did those things. Jesus would do those things. And in the midst of that, proclaim the good news. It might be as simple as telling your own story of how you move from a place of, of death to life, of, of, of darkness to light. How has Jesus called you? Or maybe it's just praying with someone who's hurting telling you what's going on in their life and you might just say, hey, would it be okay if I 
if I prayed for you. Inviting them to come to church, to spend time with you here. There's actually an easy next step here. On Saturday evening, um, March 6th, so a little bit about a month and a half away or so. It's hard to believe March 6th is already a month and a half away. Um, but we're going to have Michael Ramsden here with us. Um, Michael works with Robbie Zacharias uh, Ministries, if you know Robbie. They're both brilliant um, apologists who uh, make the gospel so compelling. Michael will be here with us in kind of a, our environment crafted to be a space that's comfortable to bring people um, who may be skeptical or just don't have much connection with, with church at all. Um, just like we do here, try to do here each Sunday morning, but maybe you have someone in your life who they don't really want to come to church on Sunday morning, but maybe invite them to come um, here, Michael. You'll hear more details about that. Um, if you've left everything to follow, presumably you did that for a good reason. It's, it's meant something transformative to you. And why don't we want others to come along with us in this? I say that to myself. This is such a convicting thing for me to preach. Who am I inviting to come? to experience the life, the wholeness, the good news of the gospel. See, following means leaving. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And it's worth it because of the, what's promised, the promise that is offered. This isn't some, Christianity is not some kind of a, a message of just self-denial or sort of a, a asceticism for asceticism's sake. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his, his amazing sermon, an essay called The Weight of Glory. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself. It's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. Lewis says, we're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description that we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Lewis says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. What Jesus offers is incredible. And I find myself not really believing those promises so often. See, leaving what we know, following, it, it can seem risky, it can seem crazy, it can even seem stupid at points, right? But, but it's actually what Jesus has done for us already. And we're going to see this more and more in the weeks ahead, but Jesus never sort of stands from a safe distance and hauls us as people and says, go do that over there. He always says, come with me. He's gone before us. He's done it first. He's made a way. And, and this is exactly what he's done. He's left everything. He's left his Father, the riches of heaven, to come and give himself for us, to rescue, to redeem us, to set all things right. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to this church in this little city of Philippi, explaining who Jesus is and all that he's done, he writes this, In your relationships, Paul says, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And here's, here's the cost. Here's the, 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 the cost part of this. But there's also a massive reward. Here's the cost. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then massive reward. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, Jesus left everything at just the right time for others, for me, for you, and in turn receives a reward and a status unparalleled in the universe. And here's the amazing claim and offer of the gospel. Is that anyone can share in that with him if we will leave and follow the one who left and came for us, who didn't wait for us to come, who didn't wait for us to seek him out because we would have never done it. Every one of us starts off fundamentally opposed to God. We're all born asking the question, how can I be happy apart from God? And everyone in our lives is more than willing to show us all kinds of ways to do that. But Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. He calls us. He's calling you. Will you leave and follow In a moment, we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, we're going to even reaffirm our commitment to to do just that as we celebrate the communion meal together, to leave behind all that we thought we were, the things that we've built our lives around, the things that we're scheming to achieve, even those good things that that are just on the cusp of of becoming ultimate things in our lives, to leave it all and follow him. But before we do that, why don't we take just a, a moment here, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, um, just to quietly reflect on how and what Jesus might be calling you to leave in order to follow. Let's just take a few minutes in quiet reflection to do that now. Father in heaven, would you, in the way that truly only you can do, would you bring, by the power of your, your word, your spirit, would you animate our imaginations to just begin to somewhat in in small pieces comprehend the glorious promise of life offered with you. And that in light of that, that everything else, even the very best of things, would be ordered correctly in our loves. That we would see them for what they are, good things, gifts from you, but that in no way compare to you yourself, the giver of all good things. Would you help us to, help me to release those things that I hold on to that, that I think will get me the happiness, the satisfaction, the joy that I want, but that all the while are just keeping me from you, the true thing my heart longs for. Would you please do that for each and every one of us? In Jesus' name, amen.